0: I'll go ahead and pray and we'll, we'll get into the word. Lord, I just thank you so much that uh, we're able to gather today and open your word and have you speak directly to us, Lord. We thank you that you have made yourself so well known and there's so much that we can learn just through even this first chapter of the Bible, Lord. And as we turn to the, its pages today, we see not only the plan that you had in place then, but also, Lord, the foreshadowing of the plan you have for all eternity, for the, the restoration of all things. And for that, we uh, greatly rejoice. I pray that your spirit would teach us and that it would cause us to uh, have a greater respect and understanding of you, which would ultimately affect our lives, Lord, that we would be convinced that you are true and right and just and your ways are pure and, and we would pursue those knowing who it is you are. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. So, context of Genesis. I kind of always start there because, again, my goal is, is, yeah, I want to help you learn some of the things in each chapter, but you also need to learn to feed yourselves. Um, I think as an elder, that's one of my jobs is to help you um, not just sit here and spoon feed you, but for you to be able to open up the word and really gain a lot of the richness that's there. And so the context of Genesis is that everything was made in perfect beauty in the garden until sin came. And then in chapter 3, we have uh, sin enter into the world and everything is destroyed. You no longer have man exerting full dominion over the world. You no longer have him living in his own spot, the Garden of Eden, with its boundaries, and no longer is he the ruler, the image bearer, the, the, the one put in charge by God over what is there, and the relationship with God is broken, death enters the world. All these things occur, and yet God offers hope when he offers the curse as well, and that hope is that at some point the seed of the woman is going to come and return things to the way they ought to be. There will be a restoration of all things. There'll be a reconciliation, as uh, was spoken of last week, a reconciliation even between God and man, that there's even that can be hoped for. Today, we're going to be looking at how it is that God is going to carry that about. And the way he does that is through This seed. Well, the seed isn't just a random person that's born, as one might assume going through the first 10 chapters of Genesis, that that we aren't sure who this person is going to be. At first, even Cain was thought that maybe he would be the one, or maybe Noah would be the one. But after Noah, we see uh, in chapter 10, the creation of nations, of actual people groups that have the same language, kind of the same culture. That live in a specific area. Nations are then created. And this creation of nations is a good thing. This creation of nations is something that uh, has to occur. That there isn't just one of these nations that covers the whole face of the earth. In fact, we're going to see that even in the ultimate kingdom of Israel, Israel is not the only nation on the face of the earth. Although they are the preeminent one. So God creates nations. And then two chapters later, he calls Abraham. And he calls Abraham not just to be the one through whom. The seed comes, but he calls Abraham so that all the nations of the world will be blessed. If you read through the Abrahamic covenant, there's a promise of land, there's a promise of seed, there's a promise of them blessing all the nations of the world. And that blessing of all the nations of the world comes through the nation that comes from Abraham himself. The birth of that nation is about to occur here in the text that we're reading. The birth of that nation will happen through an incubation period in the land of Egypt. So while this is a fascinating story and one that surely is worthy of a, of a Broadway musical when we deal with Joseph, it is, it's probably second to the prodigal son, which it would fit more of a short story, but the prodigal son I still think is the most amazing story in all of scripture. But Second to that, I think, is the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is not about Joseph. That's not the ultimate thing here. We're not studying about Joseph. And the reason Genesis is going to end with the story of Joseph isn't because it's a really neat story. And look, God used this man to to, um, forgive his brothers. And isn't this amazing how he was able to do that and forgive his brothers and save them? There's a bigger picture going on here through Genesis. It's the birth of a people and an ethnic and national Israel is being formed now. And it is through that nation, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. Both through Christ. We all know that, right? The reason we're all blessed through Abraham and his seed is because that's where Jesus comes from. That's where our Bible, the the, the bulk of the scriptures are written during nationalistic Israel type times, but as well, even the apostles and prophets, the Jews gave us scripture. We're certainly blessed in that regard, but also there is a blessing that's going to flow from Christ through his kingdom to all the world. Psalm 72 8 through 11. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the Euphrates rivers to the end of the earth. May the nomads of the desert bow before him and the enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish, notice there's other places and other kings present here, and of the islands bring gifts and may the kings of Sheba and Seba offer tributes. And may all kings bow down before him, all nations serve him. So at some point when the Messiah comes, according to Psalm 72, 8 through 11, this future king of Israel, other nations are going to exist and they will be subservient to that nation Israel. We are looking at this then in light of what we know from the rest of scripture, but also from the promises to Abraham that this blessing that comes from Abraham will come through the nation that comes out of Abraham. And we're we're reading about that nation being formed right now. Zechariah 8.23, thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. There is a blessing that's going to come to the entire world from God, and God uses the means of his nation and his people that he is forming to carry that about. And I think that's fairly exciting, not only for, uh, as we read this and see what's actually happening and why this famine has occurred and why, uh, the, why Joseph was ultimately rejected by his brothers and sent to Egypt and why the restoration occurs. All this is so much, is, is a part of something so much bigger going on that directly impacts us even though we are not ourselves Jews. To start with, we, we kind of got the picture of this as we noticed the brother of Joseph that convinced his father to send them back with Benjamin. Does anyone remember which brother did that? Which one convinced the father? It was Judah. Judah convinced the father, I think back in 43. And then at the end of 44, we see Judah making the case to Joseph as to why he cannot keep Benjamin with him. If we go back without Benjamin, it's going to kill my father. We see Judah the one standing up to lead his brothers. It's a good example for those of you who want to be in leadership. He shows responsibility for his brothers, especially Benjamin. He cares for his father, not just Um, not just his immediate circumstances, but those who are affected by what's about to take place. He comes up with a plan and he sacrifices of himself. Judah will be the ruling tribe of this young nation. And that's what is being introduced here in Genesis is why is it that the Messiah will come through the tribe of Judah? Why is it that Judah will be the kingly line? Why was it that Saul was never going to be the line from which the kings came ultimately in israel why is it his line was going to be cut off all these things are being answered in genesis all these things are being answered even before israel has is taken one step into the promised land during the times of moses we're seeing that that the the future is in the tribe of judah when it comes to leadership there in 33 and 34 before we get to chapter 45 now therefore please let your servant remain instead of a lad A slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. Let Benjamin go back and see his dad, for how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Again, we see these qualities of leadership. He's willing to sacrifice himself for those around him and those who are under his care, and he's caring for others. And as a leader, he's not the most important one in all of this. In fact, he's the one who will become a slave. It's a neat picture of leadership that Judah gives us, and and I think it's given there in this context to start us thinking about Israel as a nation is now being formed. So we get to today's text, 17 minutes in, um, 45, 1 through 15, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, have everyone go out for me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But the brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now therefore, it is not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. Well, here, let's stop. Let's stop there at verse 8. Joseph is revealing himself as their deliverer, as their savior from this famine. The family would be gone. Everything, in fact, the, the, the idea here by the end of this is that your family would not exist anymore. The people themselves would not be preserved if it weren't for Joseph and his position. Joseph is emotionally spent. He is completely done, and it's certainly understandable. He has a lot of reasons for a lot of different emotions. He's dealing with those who wanted him dead, who sold him into slavery, who happened to be also his own brother's, He's seeing them as a group, specifically Benjamin, for the first time in over 20 years. Benjamin and he were very, very close, and their relationship with their father was also a very close one. Up to this point in time, he has not been able to express who he himself was. We, are, we know what it's like to have a secret that you know everyone would love to know, and we don't do a very good job keeping those things back. He's had to hold this back now. For this second trip down to see him. On top of that. The person in Joseph's life. That, that, that he is most close to. And loves the most. Would be his own father. And through all this. He hasn't been able to be with his father. He's held off doing that. At some, any point he could have said. This is silly. I'm going up to the land of Canaan. I'm going to go see dad. He's holding off doing that. Even to this point. And then part of the, the emotion going on here is that his brothers are absolutely terrified of him, even though there's no need for them to be. And that terror is going to increase even more once he reveals himself. And that had to weigh heavy on his heart. He had to know that once I reveal myself to my brothers, they will be even more terrified than they are right now because I'm, I'm just the leader of... of the largest, most powerful country in the world. What happens if they find out that person is also the brother that they so mistreated? You know, the idea of the one we rejected turns out to be our savior should strike a chord, right? Is there anywhere else in scripture where the one who is rejected turns out to be the savior of the people? Can you think of anything? So usually, okay, children, those little ones back there, Jesus is always the right answer. Just, just No, it's just saying Jesus did that, didn't he? Absolutely. Again, Zechariah twelve ten, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. This is looking way in the future. So that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. So we see that that there is a prediction and we see this in other places of scripture as well where the nation of Israel will turn back to the one whom they pierced, the one whom they mistreated and abused and left for dead. That that person will come back and be the one who ultimately saves them. And we're seeing foreshadowing of that occurring here. Even in Genesis, we're seeing An opportunity to look forward to what God is going to do, specifically with the people of Israel. For Joseph's side of things, the love Joseph has for his brothers and his family is just, I I don't understand it. And it, it also makes me jump forward. Matthew 23, 37 through 39, we have the words of Jesus dealing with Israel And their treatment of him and the prophets, Matthew 23, 37 through 39, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were all unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." As Jesus predicts, at some point the nation of Israel and Romans tells us at some point the nation of Israel returns to Christ, the one they have rejected. But this gives us a Matthew twenty three gives us a picture of what must have been in Joseph's mind. He wants to love his brothers. He wants to show them, this is who I am. You're safe now. You can be here. I am going to take care of you. There isn't any sense in here of any sort of of desire to cause them harm for what they have done. And we see that same thing both in Zechariah and in Matthew on the part of our Savior as he looks at the people of Israel. So then, verse 4, Joseph then reveals himself, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold to Egypt. And I don't think that's a, uh, you sold to Egypt and now I'm going to get you, but just, just so we're clear, I am the one that you, that you sold. I know you think I'm gone, I know you think I don't exist anymore, but this is me, you sold me, but I'm here. I think Joseph shows here an understanding of the temptation it would be to be grieved or, or, or angry at your own sin because of what they did. Because he says, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He's trying to put them in context. Those things don't matter. How he got there as far as his relationship to them doesn't matter. That's not the point of what they're doing there now. What's taking place here is far more important than any offense that his brothers could have exerted on Joseph in the past. This is intended to be a day of celebration because the family has been saved, because everything is going to be all right now, because God is the one who's in charge of this. What is going on trumps their sin and their sorrow. It's a time to rejoice. It's one of the reasons that when we get to heaven, yes, we'll see God for who he is and and. Our own sin for what it is. But it will not be a time for us to to mourn over our own sin. It will not be a time for us to be angry with ourselves for our own sin. Instead, it will be a time of great rejoicing because of the celebration of the salvation that has taken place. And we're seeing that here. All too often, believers get mired down in being angry with themselves and grieving over past sins rather than understanding Yes, all that thing has occurred, but God has brought everything along to you to happen in your life to give you salvation. There's no reason to wallow in that stuff anymore. Absolutely, go forth and sin no more, but at the same time, don't go back and and beat yourself up over your past. The scripture is replete with places where it tells you not to do that. If you do that, it is more of a form of sin than, than even some of the sins that you're worried about so do not grieve or do not be angry again just amazed at the wisdom of Joseph here knowing his brothers he knew what type of men they were and they knew he knew the reaction that they were going to have God ended up using the circumstances using the sin of the brothers the terrible sin of the brothers in order to accomplish his goals Jonathan Edwards refers to God as uh, the permitter of sin. At the same time, a disposer of the state of events in such a manner for wise, holy, and most excellent ends and purposes that sin, if it be permitted, will most certainly and infallibly follow. God is the one who allows these things to take place knowing that man is sinful and he uses those events, doesn't cause them, doesn't tempt men to sin, doesn't lead them into their sin, but allows the natural course of man and what sin does to us on the inside to take place so that his goals and what he wants to accomplish will be accomplished. And that's what we're seeing here. There's, this, is, this is this should be difficult in your mind. No matter how long you've been a Christian, no longer how long you've dealt with with. This sovereignty of God in the actions of man. This should be difficult because rational man, I don't think, has the ability to, to fully rectify this situation of the fact that they sin. But it is God this is the one who sent Joseph to Egypt using that sin to accomplish his goal. It's the means by which he accomplished it. Which, again, you have to be so careful That you put up some barriers and say, okay, God does not cause sin. God does not tempt people to sin. Sin is an inside job. There's something in your heart that leads you to sin. It's not God. But at the same time, God uses these circumstances to carry about what it is he needs to accomplish. And that's something that we see over and over and over again in Genesis. So... The worst of the famine is not done. The famine has been in the land for two years, and as we remember from the dreams, there's still five more years when there will be neither plowing nor harvest. So Joseph is aware that They have to stay there. He's making it clear to him. okay, what I'm about to tell you now, the reason you've got to do what I'm going to tell you to do is because you can't just go back because next year it's going to be better. You're going to need to stay here and you're not going to be able to just stay here for a year or two. It's five years before we can plow. And again, that's important because he's going to ask everyone to move to Egypt and stay there for the foreseeable future. And then he makes a very interesting comment. God sent me before you to preserve you, preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. That remnant word is one that we see repeated throughout scripture, specifically in Isaiah we see it. Um... Somehow Joseph knew and understood. You have to remember, he's been removed from his family for 20 years. But Joseph knew that there must be a remnant. Joseph must have had an understanding from his father the importance of the seed, the importance of the line going forward, and the importance of the land, and everything else because he's building up to a, a an explanation for why they have to leave that land and why it's okay. Certainly, he would have been told by his father the story of the first time he left the land of Canaan fleeing from his brother. And again, we had the angels on the, on the ladder going up and down from heaven and God giving Jacob the assurance, yes, you can leave. And then also when he came back then, when he fled Laban and came back, God telling him, this is the land where you're going to stay. This is where I want you. This is the land that I have chosen for you and you're going to be a great nation. Everything I promised Abraham, everything I promised your father, it's all coming through you. The importance of the land, Joseph understands that, but Joseph also understands that it's not just the land that it's important, it's these people, it's this nation that's going to be formed. And he's saying, that's why you're here. The whole reason for everything in Joseph's life from the day he went out to visit his brothers out and find them in the field till now is because God wanted to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. God understood better than even some of us, or Joseph understood even better than some of us do, and we have all of Scripture in front of us, God's plan here and what he was about. So in light of that, he then sends a message to his father. Now therefore it is not you who sent me here, but God, we covered that, and he has made me the father of Pharaoh and lord of the household and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all all that you have. There I also will provide for you for there are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you would... All that you have would be impoverished. You'd lose it all. Material, family, everything would be gone. So Joseph gives the argument to try and convince his father to come. He still hasn't seen his father yet. He wants to make sure that that takes place. He wants to be sure his father and the entire household is brought to Egypt he explains the to he, the part of the message to his father is that god has made him the lord of all egypt that god has placed him in charge it, it, there is no way this happens any other way than god's hand is in it and i think that's why he includes that in the message look god is in charge The only way I am in charge of the most powerful country in the world, having been brought here as a slave, sold by my brothers, is if this is the hand of God doing it. He has made me lord of all Egypt. So, this plan that I have starts with what God is doing. And then he promises him, You're going to live in a separate piece of land with your whole household. Again, this hasn't been requested of Pharaoh. As you read ahead, he's going to ask Pharaoh for that later. But he's certain that that's going to take place. Again, And we'll find out later, this is probably the son of the Pharaoh that he interpreted the dreams for. But Joseph is someone who really knows people. He knows people well, and he knew how Pharaoh would respond. And so he's already laying the groundwork. Look, dad, God's in control of this situation. You're going to have a separate place to live. You and your whole household, you will survive the famine. Otherwise, everything will be taken away. People, possessions, everything. Yes. So yeah, there's an understanding that there's 400 years that's going to take place here, that we're going to be in a foreign country. So yeah, I wouldn't be shocked if he had an f- understanding. Be here for 500 yeah. Yeah. So there's an understanding of the fact that they can leave the land. The bigger issue is, or that they will be out of the land for a time period. The bigger issue is just convincing Jacob, who we see time and time again, doesn't, he's, he's got a stronger tie to the land than either of his father or his grandfather. And I think that's one of the bigger things. But yeah, does Joseph fully understand everything here? Maybe not the whole, what it's going to take to get you out of the land or how big of a nation they're going to be when they do finally leave. I think those things are a little bit in the air, but he also understands that they're going to be there long enough that I'm going to die and you're going to have to carry my bones and that kind of thing. Good question. So we have here that um, Joseph presents to his father the plan. This is, this is why I want you to tell, tell dad these things and, and how you're going to get him to come here. And he tells him all about, so you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, you must hurry and bring my father down here. So that's the presentation. This is what I want you to tell him now. Go do it. And then we see this, this, the family embraces here. The family comes together in spite of all that has happened. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and he wept on them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. And I just, I just can't imagine what it will be like for Jesus when he is back and reigning on his throne rightfully and his own people receive him back. And the emotion that's going to be going through everyone's mind as they look back at all of the hardship that brought them from from this point all the way through the Old Testament, the kings and the prophets, and through the disciples and the apostles, and and, and all the way through through today as the rejection of the Messiah continues when finally they're back together as a nation following Christ. But I think this is, a, this is again, a foreshadowing of what is going to take place someday. I think we're seeing that here play out. And then we see the blessing of Pharaoh. Now, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And you'll find, it's interesting, if you look, look at that word, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. So the word pleased, it's very often used in scripture when an event has occurred and somebody changes their heart or changes their mind, um, either acted upon by evil or by God. And here, I would say, again, the heart of Pharaoh is changed. I think it indicates that there's some sort of change or reaction to the events and I would say the hand of God is on that. It's implied. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, "Say to your brothers, do this: load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan, and take your your father and your households, and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you'll eat the fat of the land." Now you are, and it's kind of funny. Again, uh, it's nice that Pharaoh thought of that idea, but. Uh, five, six verses earlier, and, well, eight verses earlier in verse 10, um, Joseph already has a plan. It's already set. Pharaoh's just going to follow along with what Joseph knows is going to happen. Um, it's got to bug Joseph's brothers that, that Joseph is always knows what's going to happen and, and tends to be right. Does he prophesy? Well, I don't think it's, I, I think he declares the future through his dreams. And I think well, prophecy equals somebody who, somebody who is a prophet is someone who declares the word of God before, right, so events before they're known. We don't typically put Joseph as a prophet. So, no, uh, we, we wouldn't technically call him a prophet, but I think he does prophesy here. But it's interesting, right, that's he, what I'm he knows, he seems to have an idea, and I think this is more, he knows and understands Pharaoh and what, how Pharaoh's going to react, and also what God is doing, in which case he's kind of prophesying. Yeah, yeah it's clearly got a deep understanding of what God is doing and yeah. how God works. And he had dreams that said, this is what's going to happen in yeah. the future on multiple occasions. He's good at that. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that was all him though. A crazy dreamer. Um So Pharaoh blesses him. Um, God works through the pleasure of men's hearts. We've seen that so far as well. Um, Again, it gives us the implication that God is the one involved moving the heart of Pharaoh to accomplish his will. And, and again, as you see that word pleased throughout, understand that maybe it's a, it's somebody is pleased to do something that accomplishes the good or they're pleased to do something that also accomplishes evil. It's used in both situations, um, but all that falls within the realm of God's sovereign hand on the events. So we have here that, that um, Pharaoh sends them off to go get the father. And he says, don't, be concerned, don't concern yourself with your goods for the best of all of the, of the land of Egypt is yours, which is nice of him, but we're gonna see they're gonna bring all their goods. And I think there's a reason for that. Then the sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them, he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin, of course, who got like five servings in the last meal, um, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with the grain and bread and sustenance of his father on the journey. And I kind of like that symbolism there, the, the, the um, male donkeys bringing the stuff and the female donkeys bringing the things that are, are specifically related to fertility, um, as the female donkeys would be, kind of um, both the wealth and the f- fertility of what uh, Joseph has in Egypt. Um, So the bread and and sustenance for his father on the journey. Um, So he sent his brothers away and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. Joseph knows people really, really well. And we all can relate to that. and, And I certainly picture immediately being in the third row of the land cruiser station wagon we had and, and being loaded back there for a trip to like worlds of fun with my brothers. And it's like, you guys don't fight back there. And that's kind of the picture that we're given here. But they have a reason to quarrel. Um, they certainly would have had a lot to talk about, about what just happened and uh, how it is that they came to this situation. And, and they've got a lot to deal with amongst themselves without Joseph there the ones that were more inclined to send Joseph away versus the ones that were trying to save Joseph versus it it could get ugly on the way back home. And Joseph realizes that and he's like, this isn't about you guys. Don't be quarreling on the way. Go accomplish your task. So they went up from Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. They told him saying, Joseph is still alive and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt he was stunned, for he did not believe them. So, an interesting statement there. Why was he stunned? Why was he, why was he stopped? Why did this cause him to be unable to react or respond to any of it? It's an amazing story. Everything Joseph told them to tell him, they did. And he can't respond. And the reason he can't respond is because he did not believe them. He doesn't trust his own boys. And, and oh, by the way, how did he get to Egypt? I don't get it, boys. How did, how did Joseph end up in Egypt anyway? I, I thought he got torn apart by a beast. Can you explain that to me? Tell me how that happened. And this is an old man they're dealing with. They could kill him. They've already said that. He's not going to do well with great shocks. But here we have it. So he's stunned because he doesn't believe his own boys. What a, what a sad state. Um, we as parents, when we raise our children, we very often take on more of their own shortcomings and failures just as we also like to rejoice more in their own successes as though they're our own um, But very difficult for a man of his age with grown men who have children. And he can't trust them. He doesn't believe them. But then we'll see when they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. So it was the words Joseph gave and it was the stuff Joseph sent that convinced Jacob That that this was true and that he needed to do what he said. So again, we see here that Joseph knows and understands his father. He he continually shows us this attribute. Again, what an amazing attribute of leadership is that to know and understand those who you lead and be able to interact with them and help them make the right decisions and do things correctly just because of your knowledge of them makes it easier for them. And, and we see this again with Joseph who certainly was uh, heavenly gifted in that regard. Jacob is convinced enough that he says, my son Joseph is still alive. I will go see him before I die. And it's, it's kind of a sad statement. I'm not sure he fully is ready for what's about to, to take place. Oh, there we go. So jo- Jacob is revived and he's ready to go down. So in verse 1 there. So Israel set out all, with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. So Pharaoh said, don't take, leave your stuff. I got enough here for you. Israel or Jacob brings all that he has. And he stops in Beersheba to offer sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And that's, that's loaded. We have Jacob understands that God needs to be in this. He, he, he doesn't want to make a wrong step. And so, yes, it's nice that, that Joseph has assured him of all these things. He sees the wealth. He may, it makes sense that this is from God. He's going to go and, and implore God. He's going to go and humble himself before his God to... Be sure of everything taking place. And it's not just his God, it's also the God of his father, Isaac. The understanding that God is a God that moves forward in generations. Again, this is not the circle of life taking place here. This is linear. God and history is linear. It doesn't just circle back on itself over and over again. We're marching forward. And as he enters towards the last days of his life, he sees the importance of the fact that God is the father or that it's his God is the God of his father, Isaac, who has passed on. He's still his God. also has the implication that God is the Father, or that God is the God of the living and the dead. So God speaks to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. So he returns to the Lord, he seeks his guidance, and God, who guides those who seek them, gives him the specific instructions that it's okay for you to go to the land of Egypt. Don't be afraid to go down there for I will make you a great nation there. Just as Joseph understood what was going on when he told them that God sent you here to preserve a remnant, Jacob now is led in by God himself saying, here's the whole point, Jacob. You're going to go to Egypt and that's where I'm going to make a great nation of you guys. I've promised that you'll be this great nation. Abraham just had one son. Isaac just had one son. Jacob, you and your household are going to Egypt, and I'm going to make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again. So this isn't permanent. You're coming back. It's interesting that he's referred to as Israel Israel intermixing with Jacob, because Jacob himself will come back. He's going to come back. His bones, his body will be brought back, but also the nation of Israel itself will come out. God is alluding to both those things here. And then there's this promise of a peaceful death, that his son Joseph will close his eyes in his death, that he's going to see Joseph again. God's now reassured him You'll get to see Joseph again. Joseph will be present at your death. Your death will be a peaceful event and it'll be with your family. As much reassurance as God could possibly give him here about his earthly situation is given here as well as what's going to take place in the future that this truly is all God's doing. Jacob arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives and the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons, his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Well, why is that important that they all went? And why is it important? It it relates to the fact that they're all going to Goshen. And why is it important that they take all their stuff? Basically, what what Genesis is telling us here is that as a people, the entire thing picked up, moved, set down. And we're going to see they're set down in an area where no one's going to bother them and they're going to be able to stay pure and divided from the nation of Egypt itself. Just as they are extracted from the land of Canaan, intact, lock, stock, and barrel, Everything goes. They still have one toehold in the land of Canaan, and that's where their ancestors are buried, and they own a piece of land there still. That's going to come and become important. But other than that, everything goes. All their possessions, everything of who they are, is being moved to Egypt. There aren't some of them being left in Canaan to... to Intermingle with the people there. They're just as there won't be intermingling in Egypt. They're going to stay a pure people and move forward as that, as God builds a nation out of this family. And then we have the list of all who went to Egypt. And I'm going to save my voice from having to read that. But verses 8 through 27. We have each of the sons listed, and their children or grandchildren are listed all the way through. And in verse 26, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. So we have all of the household is now moved to Egypt. Again, very important that this is kept intact. Because again, this story is all about moving. This is what it was all about. This is the whole, everything that's happened to Joseph to this point is all about this. The fact that they're all moved to Egypt. So verse 28. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph. So who is it that, that now Jacob sees as the leader of all the brothers? Judah, right? So Judah is sent before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came to the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. So Joseph gets to see his father again. That's what this, is. this has been building. The story has been building. Joseph was removed from his father. Joseph was the child of his father's youth. He was the child of, the, of Rachel, the one that he wanted to marry. That he worked so hard. His true love was Rachel. This is that son. They're separated violently by his own children. And they're back together again. You know, you can compare this meeting to the meeting of the prodigal son and his father. And in that regard, we see the son coming to his senses and returning to his father. And the father seeing him afar off and hitches up his pants and in a very non-respectful way goes running to meet this son that was uh, who took all of his inheritance, squandered it, with riotous living, whatever that means, and dishonored his father in every way, shape, or form. And the father comes to him and embraces him and kisses him and goes on to throw a party for him. Here we actually have the same removal of all formality. We have the removal of, of any sort of pretext of... of some sort of culture or tradition or anything like that. There's no showing here that, well, I'm the father, you're the son, here's how we go about these meetings. All formality is removed. But in this situation, the son has nothing for which to apologize. And the father has nothing that he needs to forgive. So in as we look at that meeting between the, the prodigal, son, and his father, and just the joy that must have been present there, the joy here must have been tenfold that. All that's present here is a joy of the restoration between these two men. And, and I think that's why we see this, this comment from Jacob here at the end. Israel says to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. And I think that's a that's a, I can die now. This, is, this is, I can't believe I actually get to see your face again. He's even going to comment later, I not only get to see you, I get to see your sons. I never would have thought I'd see you, and I even get to see your sons. We see life come to Jacob again. The joy that must have been in these two, two men as they embraced and wept. So again, I think it's important that we're going we're to stop there. But I think it's important that we have a good handle and understanding on what's being built here as we look at Genesis, uh, specifically as you study your Bible. There's a lot of instances in the Old Testament that give you a picture of things that happen in the new. And we can look back and... Does this fit perfectly what happens with Christ in the church or Christ in Israel? No, it doesn't. But it does give you an idea of something that, was, that is going to take place. It does show you kind of, you know, as I've used the word, foreshadowing. It, it foreshadows what will take place in the future. And those things are, and they're supported by the rest of Genesis, that Israel is important. Israel's very, very important to God. And it's very important to us as well as being a non, we're not Israel. The United States isn't Israel. Um, We have not supplanted Israel as a nation. Um, We are not God's chosen people. Um, God has certainly blessed us, but we have a different role than Israel itself has. It's not that we're a less important role. But I think it's important that we see, as, as we see Israel coming together, that they are important, and there is a plan, and the plan extends not only just as their ultimate ruler who will be Christ, the Messiah, but also the nation itself will have a role in the future for us. And it is through that that, that Christ will reign the entire, over the entire earth as the King of Kings so, so, just as you read your Old Testament, start to pull in some of those things that come elsewhere and start to see some of the way God works. and then again, there's a lot here on the sovereignty of God and how He works in individuals' lives, and we may we have three weeks left, I think, in Genesis, and that last part I may take specifically looking at the sovereignty of God because it is such a recurring theme. I think we have about two weeks left of to cover. The, the death of uh, the establishment of Israel and then the death of Jacob and, and Joseph. And maybe we'll take a week looking at some of the major themes through Genesis. But right now, building up the, the nation of God, the kingdom of God, and ultimately the kingdom of the Messiah is the, the main point that we're seeing carried out here. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much that you have a plan for this world. It doesn't just happen haphazardly, that even... Our own sinfulness and our own shortcomings can be used by you to accomplish your will and to ultimately bring you glory through your Son. And uh, Lord, in that we rejoice. I pray that you'd help us to worship you appropriately here as we gather for the uh, reading and the preaching of your word and the singing of songs and prayer. Lord, as a corporate body, I pray that you would um, bless us by allowing us to do these things. It's in your son's name, amen.